from ThrillerFix.com. It's the Thriller Fix Book Podcast, a show about mysteries, thrillers, authors, and the stories behind the stories they wrote. I do it all the time. I mean, I sit there all the time and, and try to envision what the antagonist of a novel might do. And sitting there that day watching the veneration, it was really easy to steal this. It's just sitting right out there in the open and there's no security whatsoever. It was a fairly simple matter to take it. I just needed to dress it up and make it a little more fun as how they did it. I do that constantly. I go into places and I try to envision what, what has to be done. Now, I don't, I don't tell anybody. Elizabeth, my wife's with me, and so I can whisper to her, but beyond that, we keep it to ourselves. Welcome to the Thriller Fix Book Podcast. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and this episode's guest is Steve Berry. Steve is an internationally acclaimed best-selling author of 19 novels. His books have been translated into 40 languages, with more than 25 million copies sold in 51 countries. His works consistently appear in the top echelon of the most respected bestseller list. He was born and raised in Georgia, where he earned a law degree from Mercer University and worked as a trial lawyer for 30 years, 14 of which included holding elected office. Steve is a founding member of the International Thriller Writers, a group of nearly 6,000 authors from around the world, and he served three years as its co-president. History lies at the heart of all Steve's novels. It's his passion and one that he shares with his wife, Elizabeth, which led him to create History Matters to aid local preservation efforts. Since 2009, Steve and Elizabeth have crossed the country to save endangered historic treasures, raising money via lectures, receptions, galas, events, and their popular writers' workshops. To date, they've trained more than 3,500 students and raised over $2 million. His latest release on the topic of this episode is entitled The Warsaw Protocol, and it just released on February 25th. Welcome to the show, Steve. I, I'm very, very flattered that you've again made time to discuss this new book and, and spend some time with us. Good to be here. So I finished the Warsaw Protocol in about two days. And this is such a fantastic story uh, for people who didn't get an advanced copy. What do you want them to know about it? Well, it deals with one of my favorite places in the world, and that's Poland. It's, um, it's just a marvelous country. It's a marvelous place to visit. It's a marvelous history to delve into. And I'm hoping that uh, the reader is going to get a pretty good education on the, on the country of Poland. I know I learned a whole lot about it during the uh, the process of writing the novel. This is Cotton's 15th adventure, and he gets caught up mm-hmm. in something in the Cold War, uh, something uh, that involves Russia, the United States, China, uh, Iran, and North Korea. All of them are after the same thing, but for completely different reasons. And he gets caught right in the middle of this tug of war. Yeah, and this is an incredibly... I think, relevant and, and, and poignant story about real-world events that could be happening right now, obviously with some fictional elements, and some very real players in this that, uh, that ring very true. And I, I really appreciated all the, all the time you obviously put into the characters of the story. Yeah, it, it takes about 18 months to write the novel from start to finish. So, uh, uh, and I use around 400 sources to write a novel, and this one also involved two trips to Poland. So it was wow. a good good bit in, in place to put this one together. And Poland, I, I think, oftentimes gets kind of forgotten in you know European history studies or even by even in the public conscience. And it strategically, in their placement in Europe, it is such an important landscape to control. But it's also the Polish people um, effectively lost their nationality 
as as a as a nation state for a long time under the Soviet Union and their puppets. But amazingly, when they regained their independence, their culture and everything was immediately back because they managed to you know uh, managed to allow that to survive and thrive um, despite the government controls. It's a really fascinating place. It is. It's been the battleground of Europe for centuries because there's mm-hmm. no natural boundaries to Poland on their east and west borders. So armies can just roam right in, basically mm-hmm. unimpeded, and that's exactly what's happened. And they and they, you know, the Europeans, the Russians, the Swedes, the Ottomans, all of them fought wars on Polish soil. And in 1795, the country was literally wiped off the map. It was, uh, you know, the invading. Uh, countries of um, you know, Sweden, Russia, um, Germany, uh, and um, uh, for the Turks from the south all got together and they just drew it off the map and they divvied up the country among themselves. Yes. And uh, and you're right, it, it came back and then it got wiped out again in mm-hmm. the early part of the 20th century and now it's back again. Yeah, and it is such a a fascinating place, and the the history there is is so incredible. When you walk through, like, I think in your second chapter, you you your characters are in, are in Bruges, and that is an unbelievably beautiful city. I, being there, it felt like a step back in time, mm-hmm. and you know the horse drawn carriages coming down the cobblestone streets, and you can easily picture yourself centuries ago. It's such an incredible place. It is. It's definitely right out of the 16th century. Uh, Bruges is one of the most beautiful cities in the world, and the Cathedral of the Holy Blood that's there mm-hmm. has been there for a very long time, and that's an amazing place as well. And I sat there one afternoon and watched the veneration of the blood, and wow. it, occurred, it occurred to me while watching it that it would be really easy to steal this vial. <laughs> be, yes. It wouldn't be hard at all to steal this vial. Mm-hmm. So the idea of the novel began to come together, and start, and the, this book, of course, does start in Bruges and goes from Belgium straight to Poland. I was talking with a, another author recently about kind of what you've brought up here, right? That part of writing fiction almost always involves some element of criminal thought process and criminality. And, you know, he was working on a, on a bank robbery heist story. So he actually went into the Bank of America he was going to fictionally rob. And we were talking about, you know, uh, the feeling of being in that place, knowing that you're planning this fictional crime. And I wonder if you had any, like, visceral reaction to watching this thinking, man, I could steal this thing today. Yeah, I, I do it all the time. I mean, I sit there all the time and, and try to envision what the antagonist of the novel might do. And mm-hmm. sitting there that day watching the veneration, it was really easy to steal this. It's just sitting right out there in the open and there's no security whatsoever. It was a fairly simple matter to take it. Mm-hmm. I just needed to dress it up and make it a little more fun uh, as how they did it. And I do that constantly. I go into places and I try to envision what, what has to be done. Now, I don't I don't tell anybody, and I don't. <laughs> I just, right. I just yeah. sit there, and uh, Elizabeth, my wife's with me, and so I can whisper to her. But beyond mm-hmm. that, we keep it to ourselves. Yeah, it's a it's a nice little conspiracy to have uh, have running as you're visiting all these incredible places, right? Yeah, we we find that quite a bit. We'll sit in there and look for things, things that would just tickle my interest. You know, a door mm-hmm. here. I mean, that's why I said we we visit a lot of places and we travel a lot, and you you would be quite bored going with me because I get fascinated on doors or windows mm-hmm. or 
the layout of a building or something like that. I spend, you know, an hour going through something like that. It's a, it's, it's a different process for me when I'm, when I'm on the hunt for something. Yeah. And see when uh, I'm working on, on my, my own tales, that's one of the things that I really like to focus on being a, a retired cop is those little nuance and details that end up making all the difference in making a story possible or making an, an escape or an attack possible. And yeah. I think those are a lot of the things that the public kind of in their day-to-day travels doesn't really appreciate unless you take time to sit back and think like a criminal. Yeah, the details are very important in novels and particularly novels like mine because the the reader wants it as close to reality as humanly possible. And Mm -hmm. I keep my novels about 90% to reality, 90% to actual history. I trip it up that 10% because it is a novel and I'm here to entertain Mm -hmm. you, so I definitely have to do that. But the details are so critically important. If I have to change something in a detail, something significant like um, the locate the layout of a building or how something is it works, I always put that in the writer's note in the back so the reader will know where I where I tripped it up a little bit so that if they go to the place, they mm-hmm. they don't expect to see something that's not there. Yeah, and that's one of the things that I really most enjoy about reading your books, um, having traveled quite a bit over Western Europe, is it's like looking back through a lot of my own travel videos and travel photos of, you know, being able to, in addition to the, the great job you already do in putting the reader in this place, you do such a good job of documenting its authenticity that I can easily reimagine it. It's really, really great. Well, that's that the the locales become almost a, like a character in my novels. It's like an additional character, and my readers mm-hmm. expect that. The balance is not to give them too much. It's not a travel log, so you got to give them just enough to get them interested, just enough to set the scene, just enough to keep the plot moving along, but not too much. And I'm not saying I'm great at it or I do that perfectly, but I I make a concerted effort to try to balance it as carefully as possible. Yeah. And from a a craft standpoint, I think you do such a fantastic job. And I I think your books serve as kind of a yardstick for people who are trying to write their own novels, but also for uh, for readers who want a a balance between being educated and being entertained. There is is so much, like you've mentioned, actual history and and real world information in here that um, you've managed to blend into this fantastic adventure. And I, I really appreciate that as a reader. It, I mean, it, I tore through this thing. Well, thank you. I, my, the, the, the object of the game is to keep the reader's eye moving down the page as the, mm-hmm. the object. Now, in, I, to, in doing that, I still have to fulfill what the reader kind of expects from one of my books. When my research, when I'm done, it's stacked. I write it all out on pieces of paper, and it's probably stacked about four to six inches tall, of paper wow. for each novel, I'm only going to use less than 20% of that. I mean, very small amount of that is going to make it into the novel. Now, I don't know what's going to make it when I'm doing the research, so I write it all down. But as mm-hmm. I'm doing the work and I'm writing the novel, only a small percentage makes it in. The trick is to figure out what gets in and what doesn't and try to keep that eye moving down the page as, as much as you can. The, the object is, is for you to be reading along and you suddenly realize you just learned something, but you didn't feel like that you learned it. It just yes. occurred to you that, wow, that's pretty cool. Let's go. And not, <laughs> not, not like it was spoon fed or forced to you. And again, I'm not saying I'm, I'm great at that one way or the other. I'm just saying I'm very conscious of that. And I try to make that as painless as possible. As you mentioned before, this being 
Cotton's 15th novel. I wonder how hard it is for you as this long-term writer in this series to, to keep him and his adventures fresh without feeling having your long-term readers feel like they've read this story before. Well, I've got to find that cool thing from history. That's what really keeps my novels fresh is that thing from the past that is real, forgotten, lost. You don't know much about it. And you, when you find out, you go, wow, that's pretty cool. And here in this novel, it's like the Arma Christi, which is something mm-hmm. I don't think a lot of readers know about. And then there's the whole aspect of what happened in Poland in the uh, in the late night in the 1970s going into the 1980s that I doubt very few readers here know much about at all. So I, the fresh part for me is that because the trick in writing a series is that every book in the series has to be the same but different. Now that's mm-hmm. a tall order, same but different. Same for me, action, history, secrets, conspiracies. Different, new thing from history. New so what, that it matters today. New characters that work around that. So I, I have that ability with each book to bring you in something completely fresh. None of the books are alike, only alike in that they're action, history, secrets, and conspiracies. And so that that's the trick I've tried. I learned a lot from uh, Clive Cussler on this and mm-hmm. how he keeps Dirt Pit going 50 years after the after he started. Oh, I have some, some notes in here from going through the, the, the book those couple days. And, and I think it's chapter 56. There's a, a personal story from Cotton about growing up on an onion farm, and that immediately was so detailed from my, my own family's uh, uh, farming and ranching past that I, I have to ask if that's a personal story. It's not. I, just, I have visited the onion farms down in Vidalia, Georgia, uh, mm-hmm. It's there in central Georgia where they grow the sweet onions. And they're mm-hmm. really one of the only places in the world where they're grown. And Vidalia onions are very famous. And so I've been down mm-hmm. there and seen it. Uh, I, so it wasn't personal. It was just that being there, seeing it, talking to people down there, uh, it's quite an amazing place. I mean, those onions, I don't know if you've ever had one, but yes, you could actually eat it like an apple. Mm-hmm. And, it, and, it, and it's sweet like an apple. <laughs> Knowing your your background and your love of history, I wonder when you're not researching a book and you're not on a, a project for something you're going to write later, what histories do you like to read or do you like to, to research for, for fun? I like, to, I like to read a lot of histories. I, I find you know, books all the time that I pick up and that interest me. You know, uh, things from uh, Middle Ages are fascinating to me. Uh, interesting biographies are fascinating to me. I, I I, every once in a while, I only read maybe four to five books like that a year for fun because mm-hmm. I'm reading 400 books at all you know, <laughs> together. So, you know, and I, and I don't read every word of 400 books. Don't, don't get me wrong there, but I do read large chunks of 400 books. And so I don't have a lot of time to read for fun. But when I do, I, I try to find an interesting biography. It's usually about a subject that I'm thinking of, of writing about in the years ahead. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wetting my appetite by diving into what something. Yeah, and in, in that respect, I, I really have appreciated with the Warsaw Protocol that, I mean, in the last year, 18 months, there's obviously been a, a glut of European and Russia-based conflicts, thrillers brought into the marketplace. But you've managed to have uh, enough historical background and enough of a unique tale that this is totally different from everything else that I've read in the last 
you know, year 18 months that involves Russia and involves some of our traditional enemies. With your love of history and your research that, you know, all this stuff obviously is a very deliberate. Well, I, I try very hard to make sure that I don't write the same thing other people write. I, I don't, no one wants to copy somebody and no one wants to, to, to mimic somebody. You want to make your own way. And so mm -hmm. I, I go very much out of my way to make sure that, you know, this is a book about the Cold War and Russia and the United States and Poland. But as you say, it's not your typical one. Um, mm -hmm. you know, I don't have a it, it's not a spy novel. It really isn't. It's it's a it's an international suspense thriller with a twist to it. With your organization, History Matters, uh, what are you guys working on with that right now? And what kind of projects do you have on the horizon for that? With History Matters, uh, you know, we do uh, we try to do two to two to three projects a year. We're looking at what we would do in 2021 right now. And so, you know, we, we wait for people to contact us and ask us if they'd like for us to come and help them raise money. And then we mm -hmm. evaluate each one of those. And we try to pick good partners because the majority of the work on those is done by those partners. I mean, we're basically, we just come to the community for them to use us in a way to raise money. I pay my own way to go to History Matters. I don't I charge them anything, so I'm, I'm putting my money into it as well, not mention my time. We've raised about $2 million for various projects around the country wow. now. For someone who wanted to get involved with History Matters or to be involved with you know some aspect of history in a local community, where do you see people being able to, to fit in and do the most good in protecting and preserving our history? Well, they find... Artifacts. I mean, we've done all kinds of things. We've done buildings, documents, posters, cemeteries. You name it, we've, we've raised money for it. So if you have something in your community, like in a community, say they have a, a particular statue that is deteriorating and they mm -hmm. need to preserve it. Well, they need to get a group together and they need to organize and they need to think about how can we raise money. Uh, first of all, what do we need to do to restore the object? How much is it going to cost and how can we raise that money within the confines of our community? Historic preservation is a local thing. There's nobody coming to help you. There's no one going to, <laughs> there's yes. no one going to give you money. I was a county commissioner for 10 years. We didn't give a dime to historical preservation. It's just not something that, the, that that's in our budget to handle. You're going to have to mm -hmm. do that yourself. And history, part of history matters is teaching that local responsibility. So we go into communities and we do all kinds of things. We do galas and dinners and luncheons and meet and greets where people pay to come. And all of that money goes to the project. We also teach a writer's workshop, which is four hours on the craft of writing, and you buy your way in with a contribution, and all of that money goes. So we have a variety of ways we can raise money. It depends on the community and what works for that community. Now, in uh, closing out the, the interview, I have one last question kind of based on, on the Warsaw Protocol for you. Huh? Uh, let's say, hypothetically, Steve, that you found yourself in a castle Perhaps, you know, amidst a massive bidding war over some intelligence documents from all manner of good and bad players, but you desperately need to escape and cotton isn't available to help. Who do you call to come to your rescue? Ooh, boy, that's a toughie. Uh, can it be a fictional character? Can be anybody you want. It's, it's your escape. My escape. So I would probably... Uh, I mean, I would probably get on the phone first and see if Dirk Pitt was available because he can mm -hmm. always get you out. <laughs> and if he, if I can't get him, then I'm going to call Gray Pierce. 
who is, you know, James Rollins mm-hmm. is a great, great character. Uh, yes. I think, I think between those two, I can probably get out of there. You'll be in good hands. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I greatly, greatly appreciate you making time again to sit down with us, Steve, and uh, all the best of luck. This is such a wonderful book. I'm sure that it has already been flying off the shelves. Well, and, and we hope that it's going to keep doing that. If any of your listeners want to know more about me or my books, they can go to my website, which is steveberry.org. They can also go there for History Matters as well. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time, sir. Appreciate it.